0: The honorable the chief justice and the associate justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. God save the United States and this honorable court.
1: Understanding our democracy. One podcast at a time. This is the show about politics and history. Here's your host, Nate. Everybody, welcome to another episode of the show about politics and history. Today on the show, we're talking about the Supreme
0: Court. Okay. So, but before we do this, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to let me interview you.
1: Okay. <laughs> how old are you? I'm 9.
0: You're 9, and how did you get the idea to do this?
1: Well, I was at my dad's work, and I said, "I want to make a podcast." And he said, okay, what do you want to call it? And I said, the show about science. And he said, okay, who do you want to interview? And I said, my mom.
0: And I, is your mom a scientist?
1: Uh, no, she's just the first person I thought of.
0: <laughs> that was very politic of you, I have to say. So how many have you done now?
1: All right, so now I've done around 80-ish, I'd say. 80-ish? And just recently I started a new show called The Show About Politics. Um, It's a unbiased view at American politics and really just how it works.
0: You know, you can never be unbiased. You try your best, and there are a lot of rules that make it easier to be unbiased. But in the end, we all have hidden biases that we don't know about. So the main thing is to be fair, to make sure that you let every side, within reason anyway, every side. Uh, But you have every, every major point of view represented and fairly represented. And I think that's the thing that I try to do. It's the thing we try to do at NPR.
1: And if you're an NPR listener, well, you probably know who that voice belongs to.
0: My name is Nina Totenberg. I'm the legal affairs correspondent for National Public Radio. I have been covering the Supreme Court for many, many decades. Let's just put it this way, I've been covering the Supreme Court longer than any justice of the current court has been sitting on that court. And I've seen it change quite dramatically over time. I started out as a print reporter and eventually came to NPR, did some stuff for television as well, still do, and uh, that's my story. So, what are your questions about the Supreme Court?
1: All right, so we're going to start from the beginning. So, could you tell us about um, the first time you ever covered the Supreme Court? What was that like?
0: I wish I could tell you. I don't remember. (laughs) I really don't remember.
1: (laughs) So, um, what was the most exciting part of the Supreme Court that you've covered?
0: Well, I've covered a lot of very exciting cases, and I think the ones that stick out most in my mind may have been when I was younger because I had never seen anything like it before. So I remember very clearly the argument, the oral argument in the Pentagon Papers case and the day that that decision came down, and I remember the argument in the Watergate case.
1: Oh! Ah. And I, I just went to Watergate a
0: oh, couple days ago. That's <laughs> you went to the Watergate apartment complex the hotel. With, to the yes. hotel. So and I so I remember those arguments very well. And then there's some very memorable announcements of decisions and the ones that tend to stick in my mind for those are the m- rather more recent ones because just those are the ones that you remember and they're often the ones you didn't expect, so when the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, it was not only unexpected, it was so unexpected, and the Chief Justice who announced the opinion took so long getting around to the fact that he was going to uphold it, and he was the critical vote, that a lot of folks in the news media simply got it wrong, because they weren't in the courtroom. I want to bring you the breaking news that according to producer Bill Mears, the Supreme Court justices have struck down the individual mandate, the centerpiece of the health care legislation. Wrong. They were reading the synopsis that's at the top of the opinion, and they missed the fact that while he agreed with the conservatives on one question, that was offset by his decision in another part of the decision.
1: We have breaking news here on the Fox News Channel. The individual mandate has been ruled
0: unconstitutional. Wrong. And so Fox News got it wrong. I think CNN had it wrong for a while. Um, Other folks got it wrong. I didn't get it wrong because I was sitting in the courtroom.
1: (laughs) That's what you got to do.
0: Well, it's a tough choice because it means that you are not first. Because these days with so much pressure to be online quickly or for television to have somebody standing out there and a producer runs out and brings the opinion and you, you're you scanning it. Um, in Bush versus Gore, I remember I was on the air and uh, it looked like a 7 to 2 decision from the first thing that the court said um, about its opinion. And as I was on the air, I'm flipping through, and I realize it's not a 7-2 decision, it's a 5-4 decision. And that sort of was a nice gloss that was being put on it by whoever wrote that part of the opinion.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about how the Supreme Court has evolved since you covered it in the first cases?
0: Well, when I started covering the court, the very first cases I covered was in, were in 1968. It was a very liberal court. It was still the Warren Court, the Chief Justice Earl Warren. And it was soon to become a less liberal court, but a kind of a centrist conservative court with liberals still winning a lot of decisions and a considerable consensus on abortion, which was seven to two, Uh, most of the civil rights cases were unanimous or close to unanimous. And over time, the court has become increasingly conservative. I did the math the other day. I don't think it's quite twice the number of Republican appointments to the court as Democratic appointments, but it's close. And that's just the result of, of luck or lack of luck, if you want to put it. And as the Republican Party has become more and more conservative, particularly on social issues, but on business issues and other kinds of issues too, Republican appointees have similarly become more and more and more conservative. And that has moved the court considerably to the right so that Justice Stevens, who recently died and who served on the court until his 90th year, um, wrote at one point that in a civil rights case that he did not think that any member of the court that he had joined in 1974 would have written the conservative decision that he was dissenting from. And so Stevens, who was considered a sort of a center-right Justice, for many years after his appointment, increasingly became more to the left, not because he changed dramatically, though he certainly changed on a couple of issues, but because the court moved more and more to the right. So somebody who was sort of center-right in 1974, by the time he retired in 2010, I think, he was the most liberal member of the court.
1: Um, Could you tell me about how dissents are crafted and how they work?
0: Well, let me do this the other way around, Um, because the way majority decisions are assigned is that the chief justice, if he's in the majority, assigns who will write every majority opinion. If he's not in the majority, then the senior justice in the majority assigns the opinion. At the moment, that's most likely to be Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, though Justice Thomas is more senior than she is. But because he's usually on the conservative side, if her side is winning, then most likely um, she's doing the assigning. And often there is more than one dissent so that dissenters don't need to coalesce around a single view. It's nice when they do. It's probably good for the idea that they may win next time. But it's the majority that has to keep five votes subscribing to one legal view. And if one of those five flakes off, writes a concurring opinion, and doesn't join the majority, that means there aren't five. There isn't a majority view on the court. So you really have to appease your critics if you're in the majority. And sometimes people lose the majority. Somebody says, I can't sign on to this, or I've changed my mind. Uh, There are some very famous cases like that. One of them involved a graduation in a public school. And the question was whether there could be a non-denominational prayer. And Justice Kennedy was the deciding vote. And he initially voted to uphold the non-denominational prayer. And he changed his mind and voted the other way. He was assigned actually to write the opinion. And as he wrote it, there's an expression in the Supreme Court, this won't write. He said, this doesn't work. It doesn't work. It has to go the other way. And he changed his mind. And he got the assignment to write the majority opinion for what had previously been the dissent.
1: That's interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. What's your favorite time when a new Supreme Court justice has been added on to the court? What's that like?
0: Well, everybody's watching that individual. And you often can't tell a lot about a new justice right away. It takes several years before their overall philosophy becomes clear. You know, you see, for example, Justice Kavanaugh has already completed one term. And he's a pretty conservative justice, more than pretty conservative. He votes with his fellow conservatives the majority of the time. But the interesting times for me are when he doesn't. So in a case involving race discrimination and jury selection, he wrote the majority opinion, striking down a conviction because of racial discrimination in selecting the jury. Now, he was assigned that opinion by Justice Ginsburg because it was five to four. And if you look at Justice Gorsuch, he's very, very conservative, for the most part. But he is probably, I think, the most liberal member of the court when it comes to the rights of Native Americans.
1: Are there any liberals who sometimes sat with the conservatives? Oh, yes, they
0: do. Uh, they do you know, it's, it's not all the way down the line, liberal-conservative, liberal-conservative. But what is more often than not true, and, and the vast majority of the time, is that when there is a highly controversial case that splits the court, where there is not real consensus, it's usually five to four, and it usually falls along liberal-conservative lines. There is the rare case where For example, Chief Justice Roberts voted against the citizenship question on the census, uh, and he was the fifth vote, and he, as the conservatives probably saw it, defected from their camp on that. Um, And conversely, Justice Breyer, in criminal cases in particular, sometimes votes with the conservatives. So it's never one way all the way. But in the big cases, the biggest controversial cases, it usually is, these days. It wasn't that way when I first started covering the court. But the court, like the rest of the country, is somewhat polarized.
1: Mm. All right, so I heard that you've met Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Can you tell me about that?
0: Well, when I first started covering the court, In the very beginning, um, and it was the early 1970s, and there was a case called Reed v. Reed, which ended up being the first case in which the Supreme Court, for the first time, said that states could not automatically prefer men over women. In that case, it was to be executors of estates. They couldn't just do that without a, a really, really good reason. And since there, by and large, isn't a really, really good reason, that was the beginning of a wave of gender rights protections extended by the Supreme Court. Well, I was in my 20s covering the Supreme Court for the first time, and I didn't really understand the argument um, for the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection of the law to apply to women since the 14th Amendment was adopted to protect the rights of African Americans and uh, freed slaves. And so I didn't really understand how this could be, and I flipped to the front of the brief, and it was written by a professor at Rutgers University named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm. And I called her up, and she gave me like an hour-long lecture, and that started a long 50 years or so of my knowing her and becoming friends with her. She actually performed the wedding ceremony when my husband and I got married. Mm. And in the beginning, I knew her as a a legal source, and then I got to know her more over the years. And and so I've known her a very long time.
1: Do you have any advice for kids who might want to become Supreme Court justices someday?
0: (laughs) My advice would be don't count on it. Because it's, a, it's very much the luck of the draw. And whether you're the right age with the right philosophy and with the political parts of your life fitting in to be at the appropriate time. If you want to be a judge, that's another thing. You know, there is a good chance you can become a judge. But what I tell people who aspire to any position where they're not in control of it Appointers are in control of it. There's a limited amount that you can do. You have to be true to yourself, true to your views, and hope that those coincide with somebody who has the power to appoint you someday.
1: Thank you so much, Nina, for being on the show today.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: If you'd like to learn more about the cases we discussed in this episode, I've put some links for you to check out in the description. Music on this episode was written by Sound of Picture, and our theme song was composed by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.